Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. Here we are now, week three of our All In series, week three, and we've, we've gone through the first two weeks, and we talked about being aware, and, and, and Nehemiah became aware of the issue and his hometown, and, and that there was a need, and that the need prompted him then to, to feel led to go back. And then last week, we talked about how, how he had to wait. He had that faith to wait, that when, when God gave him the opportunity to jump at it, then he jumped at it, and he gave him the faith to ask and to step out. And so here we are in week three, and we're going to cover a lot of ground in the book of Nehemiah today. In fact, we're going to go through four chapters, and, and we're going to not read all four chapters because, goodness gracious, that would be a whole lot to try to squeeze into this time. But we will give a quick synopsis in a minute of the four chapters we're walking through this morning. But if, a little while ago, and, and a lot of you know this, and you were here, and you lived this, but we had a huge storm blow through the Lake Highlands area, right? And we, and we all know it. We lost skylights out in the lobby, which are now repaired and replaced. And so but the blue tarps are gone, and the humidity has left the lobby. So it's a wonderful Wonderful, wonderful thing to now celebrate on the backside. But, but we walked out of our house right after the storm, and trees were down everywhere, everywhere, right? And, and in our neighborhood, there were branches everywhere. The day before the storm, my neighbor and I were out front. We were both doing yard work, and I started talking to him, and we were looking at, he has this huge oak tree. It's beautiful. It's an awesome tree, but it is old, and it, it is doesn't have much life left in it. And he's, so he, we were talking and he said, you know, next big storm, this branch up here is probably going to go. Like next big storm we have, it's probably going to just be, be gone. And sure enough, the next day we have this crazy storm come through and that branch goes flying out of the tree, right? But it didn't just go out of the tree. It impaled his roof and it looked like they had a tree growing right out of the middle of their house. I mean, it was a large branch, went straight in, and, and it, it was in probably about 18 inches deep into their house. Now, he's a firefighter here in the Dallas Fire Department and was working that day during the storm, of course. So his wife is, of course, home alone when the storm hits, and all of a sudden, water is just pouring into their house, and she's going, of course... This happens every time he's gone, something catastrophic in the home happens. So here he comes. Luckily, he's a crew chief. He brings the whole fire truck, and the whole team comes out. They're up on the roof. They got chainsaws. They're pulling things. They pull this thing out, and it broke off like a spear. I mean, it was sharp, pointed edge, straight in. And, and, and they're tarping this thing, getting it all set and ready to go for the roofers to be able to come and inspect and look at and take care of. The coolest thing that I noticed, though, about this whole storm that happened in our neighborhood, and it may have been the same where you live, is that as soon as the rain stopped, everybody was outside assessing the damage, taking a look at things, and then neighbor helping neighbor and, and lending tools and borrowing, and things were cleaned up in our neighborhood on our street within two hours. It was insane. People are coming out with chainsaws and going place to place. We, my neighbors let me borrow some tools to be able to clip some branches and do some things that, that, that I didn't have what was needed to handle some of the, the, the larger branches that had fallen. And next thing you know, all of our brushes stacked up out at the street waiting for the city to pick it up. It happened just like that. As soon as we were in ruins, so to speak, it was being cleaned up and taken care of. 
So then I started thinking about Nehemiah and the fact that the city of Jerusalem had laid in ruins for years and years and years and years, and people had become complacent and okay with the fact that nothing was right and nothing was in order. And yet Nehemiah asked one question, how is, how is our hometown, how is Jerusalem, and immediately is prompted to go and take care of it immediately prompted to go travel 700 miles back home to begin to rebuild the walls. And, and, and it challenges me and it, it, in, in some sense, in some ways to say, you know, are there things in our lives that we have become complacent with? Are there areas in our lives where the walls have fallen and we've allowed them to stay down and we've just become okay with the fact that the walls have not been rebuilt? Are there areas in our church where the walls are down and we've been okay with that and we need to, to take things back and begin to rebuild those walls and say, you know what? No, we're not okay with this. We're not okay with it. We're going to be greater in this area than we've ever been. We're going to be stronger in this area than we've ever been. It's time to restore the city to restore the ruins. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm going to give a quick synopsis of chapters three, four, five, and six so that we can then move into the text that we're going to pull from today out of these chapters as we walk through this. So chapter three, here's, a, here's the big overview of chapter three. Everybody helps. Really, really broad brushstroke right there. When you read chapter three, the whole chapter is about this person built this part, this person took care of this part, this person did this. These people came from this other town, came over and started building in this area while these people thought they were too good to work on their own walls. So these people came over and fixed it for them. And it's just everybody is doing something, right? So that's chapter three. Everybody is working. Everybody's jumping in. Chapter four, uh, the people begin to do what God had called them to do and they're building these walls. And so then what happens? The opposition comes, right? The enemy then says, no, we're not gonna allow this. We're gonna rise up against you. And they, they take similar tactics as to what you see in, in the book of Ezra and how they work to stop the production and, and the, the rebuilding in the, in the book of Ezra. And so they're using the same things and, and they're trying to fight it back, trying to fight, you know, to, to bring them down. And, and Nehemiah basically ignores them and says, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. In chapter five, we find that the wealthy, uh, so during this time, there's a famine. Now the famine isn't brought about by the building of the wall. The building of the wall basically reveals the issues that are already present in, in the city of Jerusalem. So the, the famine has caused food prices to go through the roof. It's caused taxes to be uh, unpayable and all these things. So the, the poor are borrowing money from the wealthy and then the wealthy are charging them insane amounts of interest. They're having to borrow just to pay taxes and to buy food. So Nehemiah steps in and says, stop and pay back the interest. You know, it's one thing that they've, they get to pay you back what they borrowed. That's one thing he says, but stop charging them interest. This is not a, this is a difficult time right now. And so they respond and they give back the interest and, and, and that. So then in chapter six, we keep moving and there's more opposition, more opposition against Nehemiah and the people that are trying to rebuild the walls. And so you have Sambalet, who is, is kind of the leader of the, the attack against Nehemiah and what's happening. And he's now telling lies and sending these open letters for all the public to read about these, these made up and fabricated stories. We also find that there are, excuse me, there are prophets who are basically uh, false prophets, not basically, they are false prophets that are then telling lies that are being fed to them and they're prophesying as if it were from the Lord, right? And so they're telling these false, these false testimonies and things about Nehemiah and in the end, Nehemiah wins. At the end of chapter six, we see that they had finished the walls in 52 days and all of the people who had been causing this opposition and stirring things up basically have to stop and recognize 
that God helped them to do it. So it's this really cool moment where Nehemiah almost gets to go, he doesn't, but he wants to, I think. If he's anything like me, he did. But he bit his tongue. So The big idea today is this. When you are being obedient to God, opposition will come. But we win in the end. We win in the end. So let's jump into this. First thing today, as we walk through a whole lot of scripture in, in kind of broad brush strokes today, the first thing is this. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a role to play. This, this chapter mentions all kinds of people, all kinds of people that are jumping in and working and getting involved. And, and you, see, you see this person doing this, this person doing that. And, and in a time period when women were not to do hard manual labor, they were not to work, even women were getting involved. There's a part where it says this, this man was building and his daughters were helping him. Like everybody was jumping in. Everybody had a job. Everybody had a role to play. Everybody was taking part in the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. It's a huge amount of wall that they're building, tons of you know, miles of wall that are being built. And, and, and everybody looks at it and sees the need and they jump in and they get involved. But you learn a few things through this chapter about, about how some actually didn't, did work or didn't work or how some worked harder than others. And there's, there's a few things that, that as, as a church that we need to be aware of, of how it's going to go and, and recognize these things. First of all, some people will not work. Some people won't work, and that's just the way it is. And so when we read this, there's, there's the story of, of, of there's a town called Tekoa, which is just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And so Tekoaites, that's a fun one to say, are coming over to help build. And they realize that where they're building is basically kind of in the aristocratic type area of Jerusalem. And these are the wealthy elite that want, uh, that have no part in getting their hands dirty and working. And these people come in and just do the work for them. It doesn't say that they were asked or that they were paid to do so, but it was that they were like, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to get our hands dirty. I might break a nail and goodness gracious, I worked so hard on these fingernails, right? It's just the kind of mentality of that would be beneath me and I am not going to do that. I'm not gonna get involved because this would be difficult for me. So some people just won't work. Some people aren't gonna do the work. What's funny to me is, is that as we see them and when you fast forward through scripture and you look at, at the, some of the greatest you know, influences from the Jewish world and the Jewish uh, people that had the greatest impact on history, meaning Paul and Jesus, Paul was a tent maker, Jesus was a carpenter. These were men who were willing to work and use their hands and, and, and do what needed to be done so that the name of the Lord could be lifted high and carried forward. But the aristocrats in this time period, the wealthy elite within this area would not work. They weren't going to lift a hand. But we find out later that they would charge the poor interest. So some people won't work. Some people have selfish motives or some people have, have selfish hearts and mindsets. And you go, okay, we need to, to, to shut that down and begin to humble ourselves and say, there is something I can do. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone plays a part. Everybody has a job to do. Some workers will do more than others. And we see those people around the church. You're like, man, that guy's doing everything, James Barta. This is crazy. This guy's everywhere. Some are going to do more than others, right? Some people are just wired that way, right? 
So they're just wired that way. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that the others are less or not as good or whatever. Some people are simply just wired to say, you know what, I'm going to do. I'm a doer. I'm going to get things done. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to work. I'm going to make it happen. And if there's something else that needs to be done after I'm finished, I'm going to jump over and I'm going to do that as well. And so what we see with the, 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 the Tekoites is that they aren't even from Jerusalem, and yet they jump in and start helping where it's needed. And they didn't just do one section or one area that a lot of the people were doing, which wasn't a bad thing. They just said, you know what? We still have our tools and we're still here. We might as well jump over and start working on something else to get done and, and finish another section. And so they did. They went and then moved to another part of the wall and began to build that section of the wall and say, hey, we have our stuff. We have our tools. So some people aren't going to work at all. And some people are going to do more than others. And then others, it says, some do their work at home. At least six different workers plus an unknown number of priests repaired the portions of the wall that were nearest to their own houses. They said, you know what? There's a section of wall right here by my home. I can go and fix that. I can work on that part of the wall. What if the church today decided that, you know what? I've got neighbors next to me. I've got coworkers near me. I've got friends that I know that need Jesus, that need to be around a, 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 a Jesus-loving, God-fearing Christian that is going to show them Jesus. What if we decided to say, you know what? I'm going to take care of home. What if we decided, you know what? I have children that need to know Jesus. What would the church look like today if we would have just all done our work at home? And that's kind of a, 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 an unnerving kind of thought and just kind of, a, kind of hits hard at home sometimes if you go, man, what would the church look like if? I have friends that I grew up with, uh, very, very good friends, one, my, my best friend in the world. And, and, and we grew up in church together, in youth group together, and he was just doing all sorts of stuff. He helped in our kids' ministry at, at the church we grew up at when he was uh, junior, senior in high school and was awesome. The kids loved him. He had a whole character where he was like the samurai warrior kind of guy, and he was a complete idiot at the same time. It was awesome. And the kids loved it, right? And he's telling all these kids about Jesus, and then now he's nowhere near the church. And you go, what happened in the process? What happened along the way? But if we would learn how to take care of home, what would the church look like today? Some people work harder than others. Some people do more than others, and some just work harder than others, right? There was a, a, a great quote by a, an old, like, 1800s humorist from, from London, and he says, his name's Jerome K. Jerome, and he says, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. <laughs> See, the church is not a place, uh, you know, the, the kingdom of God is not a place where, where we're just to be bystanders and to be observers and to be spectators, right? There's work to be done. There's work to be done. In fact, there's, there's one man, his name is uh, Baruch, and it is the only worker of whom it was said that his work was done earnestly or zealously. Here's the cool thing. The Hebrew word means to burn or glow. And it suggests that, that he burned a lot of energy. Like he just kept going and kept going. You know those people that just have an insane amount of energy and when they work, you go, how come in the same amount of time you just did three times what I just accomplished? Like what in the world? I've worked with guys like that and you go, man, alive, I can't keep up and you're 20 years older than me and yet I'm trying to do my best and I go, you got a pace that I can't keep up. Some people have that in them, right? Some are gonna work very, very, very hard and they're gonna do all that they possibly can. Uh, in, in Ecclesiastes, Paul talks to the servants and he says to work hard for their masters because they were really working for Christ. 
We're in Ephesians, I apologize. Ecclesiastes would have been in the other side of the Bible. <laughs> not always good. Lazy workers not only rob themselves and the Lord, but they also rob their fellow workers. We're called to be hard workers. We're called to, to do the work of the Lord earnestly. To do the work of the Lord earnestly. Proverbs 18, 9 says, He that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Meaning that whatever our hands find to do, do it all for the glory of God and do it with all that we have. God has called us as a church to reach people in this area. And if we're gonna be all in for what God has called us to do, we have to be willing to work we have to be willing to work. We have to be willing to roll up our sleeves and jump in and say, I know that there are needs in the church. And I'm not just talking about work day this weekend. That's not what I'm, I'm meaning. Uh, we have kids that need people that, that, to show them Jesus on Sunday mornings. We need people to greet and to smile and be welcoming as people walk in the door. We need people that are helping to make coffee and serve coffee for the glory of God. And understand, any role and position and, and opportunities to volunteer here at, at Grace Hill and to be on our dream team and a part of what's happening on our dream team is not a small role. There are no small or insignificant roles within our church because everything we do at this church works collectively together to see people come to know Jesus. Jesus. What we do matters in light of eternity. What we do matters in the lives of individuals. It's, it's so significant. I think about our Grace Kids Junior in our early childhood age and, and how important it is that we have men and women in there who are speaking life over these kids and who are showing them the word of God and, and living out biblical examples and values before them. Even if it is for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, it's vital and it's crucial. There is no insignificant or small role that we have within our church. And everything that we do is important for the kingdom of God. And at the end of service, I'm going to talk to you about some cards that we have in the baskets under your seats. They're brand new. It's an opportunity for you to sign up to join the dream team if you have not already jumped in and found your place. And we'll come to that again, again in a minute. Let me tell you this, so that doing the work of the Lord can come with difficulty at times. Doing the work of the Lord does not make you immune to the attack of the enemy. In fact, I would say it paints a target on your back. Let me be an encouragement to you this morning. There will be difficulty when you start doing the work of the Lord. Because as you carry the name of the Lord forward, as you carry the name of God and you, tell, you start shining the light of Jesus, the enemy, the devil wants nothing more than to put that light out to the best of his ability. The second thing that we have is, 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 in our notes today is this opposition is imminent. Doesn't it always seem as if as when things are going really well for you that that all of a sudden, bang, something happens and you go, well, wasn't expecting that. Things were just going so great. Lauren and I, we, we've talked about this several times, especially in our, our earlier years in marriage. And, and you may be thinking, y'all are super young. We have been married for 12 years. So uh, we were married as babies. And... Uh, <laughs> We grew up together, so that's, uh, that's what we tell people. So growing up together as, as newlyweds and young, we, we found ourselves that as soon as we felt like we were getting ahead a little bit financially, things were going well, all of a sudden, that's when we'd have some big financial burden happen, right? It would just boom. You go, 
I thought things were going well. What just happened? There goes all the money we had. You know, there goes our savings or things of that. And things like that would happen all the time. Like, like my car would backfire and catch on fire and then it would be done. Like that happened. It's a real story. Uh, and we'll share it sometime. It's too long and unnecessary at this point. But, but it was as if we were getting ahead and, and things are going great in our ministry and what we're doing with the church. And we're like, yes, things are happening and we're moving forward. And then bang, just takes our legs out from underneath us and we just find ourselves going, what just happened? You know, it was just like getting blindsided. And that's the way it seems to happen, especially as we commit to do the work of the Lord, especially as we commit to say, okay, God, I'm going to step out. I'm going all in for you. I'm going to do what you are calling me to do. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to serve. I'm going to go for it. And then all of a sudden, boom, you, you have to get new tires or something like you just failed inspection and you go, oh, great. There's, you know, 600 bucks that I get to go spend for fun. Isn't that the worst purchase in the world, by the way? Tires. Oh, my goodness. Nothing frustrates me more. If you can invent a tire that doesn't wear out, I will invest. Like, I, I, listen, I am all, I'm all in on that. But it's just the way it seems. And it's the same thing that was happening uh, in Nehemiah. And so in Nehemiah chapter four, verse one through three, it says this, when Sambalet heard that, uh, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox can climb up on it, would break it down, the walls of stone. And then in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and it says, when word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sambalet and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. They were scheming to harm me. I want to point out a couple of things real fast. The wall's going up. And the first thing they decide to do, the enemy says, that's it. Let's start making fun of them. Let's ridicule them. Let's try to bring them down. Let's try to bring them down. In, in, in verse one through three of chapter four, it's the very first thing it says they did was they ridiculed the Jews, right? They ridiculed the Jews. There was a, a, a British critic and author named Thomas Carlyle. He called ridicule the language of the devil. Some people who can stand bravely when they are shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. You see, the enemy and the devil knows that, that, that sometimes our, our, our worth and our value and, and who we are and our ability to work and move forward is so fragile that, that when if somebody was to poke at it or, or somebody was to, to laugh at what we accomplish or what we do, it would crush us and cripple us and bring us down. It would destroy us. Shakespeare called ridicule paper bullets of the brain. The things people say may hurt us, but they can never harm us. Unless, unless we let them. Unless we let them get into our system and poison us. 
Words can become poison in a hurry. And see, and Sambalet understood that. He recognized that, and he sees Nehemiah, and they're building, and they're moving forward. So they, the, the first thing he did in front of everybody was begin to ridicule them. He goes, that's it. Well, we'll, just, we'll start to bring them down. We'll begin to, to, to tear them down mentally, word by word by word by word, and we'll begin to cause them to feel less and less and less. And he says, you know what? Let me shake the mindset of Nehemiah, because maybe then he will back off. Maybe then he, he won't be able to move forward. Maybe then he'll he'll say, you know what? You're right. I can never do this. You're right. I can never make it happen. You're right. I'm just a cupbearer. What do I know about building walls? I'm just a cupbearer. How can I lead people? I'm not even, I'm not even really from here. My ancestors are from here. I'm from, I live 700 miles from here. What am I doing here? Isn't it like the enemy to want to try to bring you down mentally and discourage you, begin to ridicule you? People begin to say things and you begin to take it to heart. And, and, and instead of having this thick outer shell and the skin that feels like impenetrable, it is so easily pierced with a single word or a subtle laugh. We're fragile people. I have a brother-in-law named Eric. Eric's a super cool guy. I love my brother-in-law. But he likes to do this to people sometimes because I feel like he's trying to start a fight for no reason. Mind you, Eric's not. He's a pastor, but he just thinks it's really funny. But he says people are so fragile in, in that they're, they're easily, like we're easily offended, right, as, as human beings. And so, and our defenses go up in a hurry. And so he has this whole theory that he's like, I can walk through the mall and just look at some guy and go, Psh! And like the guy's going to get in crazy, crazy angry and like ready to turn around and throw, throw down. And so he did it one time when I was walking with him. He just looks at this guy and he goes, Psh. and the guy's like, what? And he's like, dude, I'm totally kidding. It was a joke. Like I just like immediately had to like backtrack, like just kidding. Just not what I, you know, it was like this whole deal because we are easily like, like we're ready to put our defenses up or ready to back down. You know, some people they hear, they like, Psh, or whatever. And they're like, oh, man, you know, like. You know, it's this whole deal. It's like we're fragile people, right? And so the enemy knows that he can attack and he can hit us hard with just simple and subtle words or even just moving breath through our lips rapidly to make a sound, right? So Sam Bullett, that's the first thing he did was, was try to ridicule. The second tactic he used was fear and intimidation, fear and intimidation. In Nehemiah 4, 7 through 11, it says, but when Sambalet, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. So they like, we tried to ridicule you so you would stop. And yet the, the, it's still moving forward. And so now they're angry. They're like, that's it. If you won't, you know, stop because I made fun of you, then now we're going to be angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. And then Nehemiah says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And then they said this, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Fear and intimidation. Fear and intimidation. Now these rumors are spreading through the people. And, and they're nervous. They're scared. They're worried. They're going, we can't do this. We're getting tired. This wall is, is, is a mess. We have no, no, no end in sight. And yet here we are. Now they're going to come and kill us. And so Nehemiah says, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to put up a guard day and night. You're all going to wear swords while you work. We'll be ready. 
he tries to use fear. In his first inaugural address on March 4th, 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said one of, his, one of the most famous and iconic statements in American history. He says, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And, and, and the reason being, and, and the reason behind that is because this fear paralyzes. And not only that, is, is that it's contagious. Fear is contagious and it will paralyze others around us because nothing will stop us in our tracks quicker than fear. Even if they weren't actually going to come and attack, all of a sudden the workers are saying, we should probably stop. We should probably stop. They're going to kill us. It's fear and intimidation. They're using these words. You know, my thought is, I don't know that they were ever actually going to attack because they knew Nehemiah had papers and orders from the king to do so. And so I feel like all they're trying to do now is just use words and intimidation tactics and, and fear tactics to try to stop the people because opposition is imminent. It's going to happen when we begin to step out and do the work of the Lord. It's going to happen. Have you ever had someone try to scare you? In our home, it is a lot of fun to try to scare Lauren. Um, in, because, not, not like a like strike fear in her heart, but like startle her, like, right? You know, I have been known to wait for several minutes around a corner hoping that she was going to come walking around and I'm just going to be like, bah! and she's going to go, bah! and she gets really angry and it's so funny. Like, it's just, it is, it is a joy in our hearts to watch her get scared and she's like, bah! stop it. You know, and it's really great. Right, there's a difference between being startled and truly being fearful, right? And fear cripples. Fear will cause us to stop moving forward and to stop working. And Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? See, fear and faith are opposites. They work against each other. They don't work hand in hand. Fear is not going to build your faith up. Fear is not going to, to cause you to, to say, you know what, let's take the city. Let's, let's go and let's go reach the world around us. No, fear will cause you to say, you know what, maybe you're right. I'll sit back and just be quiet. See, faith, on the other hand, says, no, we can rise up. We can do something greater. We can do something more. We can move forward. We can do greater things than we've ever seen or known. But fear wants to come in and squash that. He wants to come in and shut that down. But we've not been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of power, love, and of a sound mind. And God wants us to walk in his spirit and not in a spirit of fear. And the enemy will try to cause fear. The enemy will try to intimidate us and try to shut us down and restrict us. But we can rise up and say, no, I walk in a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. I don't walk in fear. Fear cripples. The third tactic that, that they used was slander. In chapter six, verse five through seven, it says, then the fifth time, this is the fifth time now that this guy's doing this, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter. This would be that open public letter, right? This wouldn't be a normal letter that would usually go to an official. And it said, in which was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And you have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. So here's what he's doing. He's trying to 
tear down the name of Nehemiah. He's trying to tear down the name of Nehemiah by, by reporting these lies and begin to say, this is all Nehemiah's working. He's trying to rise up against the king. So the first thing is this. One, that was not like an official letter written to Nehemiah because him being a government official, it would have been written on a scroll, rolled up and sealed so that only Nehemiah would have the right to see it first. And whatever he did with it beyond that was his choosing or his doing, but, but it would have been sealed. But this was an unsealed letter, meaning that it was being passed around and circulated so that people could read it on its way to Nehemiah. It was intentional because he's trying to tear down the name of Nehemiah. The other thing is this, that, that causing and saying that he was trying to, uh, you know, to rise up and overtake and become the king and all this stuff, that would have been like, like, I mean, that's treason, right? And the king would have looked at that as such and would have come after him and killed Nehemiah. So he's trying to slander the name, destroy the name and drag the name through the mud of the name of Nehemiah so that the people will then stop and push back and say, no, we don't want to be we don't want anything to do with what you're doing because that is just going to make it worse on us. So he's trying to use this slander, this, this tactic. But the greatest thing about all of this is that Nehemiah would have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. As Christians, we live in a world that is becoming less and less and less Christian friendly. And that's just the reality of where we are. And again, let me just be an encouragement to you today. Uh, it will become encouraging in a moment, I promise. There is a, we're going to end on an up. It's good. But we're living in a world that, that, that wants to, to minimize and minimize the rights and the freedoms of the Christian church and the Christian faith over and over and over and over, constantly and continually. We will walk through moments probably of slander and through fear and intimidation. We're going to walk through moments of ridicule. And these things, maybe you've experienced some of these already. Maybe you've dealt with some of this already. And it's happening all around the world. And it's happening in other places around the world in in greater rates and in, in, in greater fashion. But the reality is, no matter what we endure, no matter what we walk through, we keep our head up and we keep pressing towards the prize, knowing that God has called us to do so. Because here's the third thing today is this. Victory is a given. Victory is a given. In the end, we win. It's the greatest thing in the world. I've read the end of the book. We win. Nehemiah has, has this cool moment also in, in chapter 6, verses 14 and through, through 15 and 16. It says this, remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. He's saying, God, don't forget about them. They did bad things. Give them what they're, what they're due. This is really what he's saying. Remember also the prophet of Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. These, again, false prophets that we talked about earlier in our, our quick synopsis. These are the ones that are kind of working for Sambalet and, and saying, okay, here's what I need you to say and to prophesy, quote unquote, right? And so he says, remember her as well and the rest of them. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days in spite of everything that had gone on, in spite of all of the opposition and everything that they had pushed against them and everything that had happened, those that were working and those that weren't working, and all, in spite of all of this, in 52 days, they fully rebuilt the walls. Not halfway, not, not, not partially, no, no, no. The walls were completed, finished, and done in 52 days. In verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. I love that. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. We win. We win. There's a really 
really neat thing. So, so here he is. He's trying to, to attack and bring down. Samuel is trying to destroy everything. And Nehemiah just says, I know that my God has called me to this, and I'm going to press on, and I'm going to continue, and I'm going to continue. And in the end, they complete the wall, and they finish, and they stand victorious. And then what happens? All of the people around them are struck with fear because they knew that it was only by God that they made it happen. And everything that they had been trying, everything that they were working towards, all of a sudden, they just back off because God is victorious. God wins. And as people, as the children of God, we win. Victory is given. Uh, I, I just, there's a phrase that is, that is really interesting that is used, in it, and I, I said I loved it, but it's, and it says, lost their self-confidence. Right? They're struck with fear and lost their self-confidence. This is really cool. Here's what it actually means when you, when you it, it would be an, an idiom that would be pretty much unfamiliar in, in our world today. And it literally means this, and they fell very much in their eyes. They fell very much in their eyes, as in, in their own eyes. So, so here's what it would mean. It was basically saying that their pride had suddenly vanished. Their pride had suddenly vanished. All of this, this arrogance and, and this, this proud, like we're gonna attack you, we're gonna bring you down, you are worthless, you're not good, you're beneath me, you are below us, we're gonna ridicule, we're gonna slander, we're gonna try to cause fear and intimidation. All of a sudden, they have, their pride is gone. It's as if to say, everything I've been doing, I've been after you and after you and after you and after you and after you, and in the end, you are still victorious. There is nothing I can do. I am not capable to overcome you. I'm not capable to defeat you. Here's what's great. In our world, we're, there are going to be people that are going to attack the name of the Lord. There are going to be people that try to tear down the church and what the church stands for. And here's what's going to happen. In the end, they're going to have to stop and recognize the fact that God has been with us, which punches a lot of holes in their thoughts and theories. Because in the end, God is victorious. Victory is a given. Victory is is a given. If we are faithful and obedient, God brings a victory. God brings a victory. But it requires us to be faithful and obedient. We're taking a step of faith. And here's the deal. I say it's a step of faith, but I have faith enough to believe that this is in fact going to happen. We are going to see this come to fruition and God is going to make it happen. We've stepped out and we said, we're going to raise $50,000 in 52 days. Next Sunday is going to be day number one. We're going to take pledges. And from there, 52 days, we're going to make this happen. And with that money, we're going to do incredible things. There's things that, that, that we're working on that haven't even kind of actually made the list. We're going to talk next week about how we get to partner with a Bible translator to help put the Bible in a language that has never had a Bible that's incredible, right? Those things that we get to be a part of and things that we can say, we get to be a part of making that happen. We get to be a part of seeing great things all over our community. We get to be a part of reaching our, uh, the next generation in this area at a greater level than we ever have. We're gonna do incredible things with this money because of what God is gonna enable us to do. And it's by faith that we're stepping out and we're gonna see this because we're gonna be faithful and obedient. And in the end, God is gonna bring it. I'm, I'm not worried about that. And we're gonna celebrate what the Lord has done. It's gonna be incredible. And we're gonna have this great moment of celebration. And it's going to be exciting, and it's going to be like we just won the Super Bowl, and, and you're going to want to be here for that, because there will be confetti, and it's going to be awesome. Like, I'm just telling you right now, it's going to be the greatest day that you've ever had in church, and so God is going to do that. I know that, but beyond that, the money only goes so far and only does so much. At the end of it, the question is, are you all in enough to jump in and serve and be involved and be a part of the dream team and what God is doing here at Grace Hill? 
in the baskets in front of you, there's these, this tealish blue card, and it gives you the option to pick and to sign up and to jump in. If you're not currently involved with our dream team and serving somewhere and doing something and being a part of what we have going on here, I want to challenge you to jump in and be a part. There are so many small ways you can be a part of what we're doing that you go, I don't have a whole lot of time. Awesome. We have opportunities that fit just that. You don't have to have a lot of time. You come on Sunday mornings anyways. We make it so easy for you. Also, if you sign this and you fill this out and you say, okay, I want to work in this area, that is not like a sign for life written in blood, right? That's not what this is. This is, hey, let's give it a shot. If it's not right, we have the freedom to move you somewhere else and try something else. And we go, hey, you didn't like that? Okay, great. What else do you like to do? What are things that interest you? Let's try these things. Let's try this. Let's try that. It, this is a, we're going to find the right fit. You know, it's not about, oh, it didn't work for me here. I got to get off the bus. No, we just got to find a new seat on the bus, right? You may go, man, I got that one seat next to the guy that doesn't smell good, right? And you go, well, hey, there's other open seats on the bus. We can move you. It's okay. I don't know who that person is, so... If, just know that that was not directed at any one specific person. What I'm saying is it may not be the right, it may not be the right fit. And we go, hey, we can, we can try something else. But we are not asking you right now to sign like a one-year commitment. And if you renege on this, we repossess your home. That's not what's going on here. Sounds like a great money-making plan, though. I'm just kidding. But what is God speaking to you? We've been talking about being all in. All in, all in. And yes, we've talked a lot about raising money and saying, you know what? I'm committed. I'm all in. I want to support and be behind what God is doing at Grace Hill. Lauren and I, we are all in. We're going to be the first to give to this. And we're going to, we're going to jump out and we're going to step out in faith and we're going to trust God with what we give. I'm going to say, okay, God, we're, we're stepping out and we're going to ask you to, to, to bless uh, what we give and, and use it to do great things. We're going to do that. And I know you are too. That's, that's not the question. That's not the, the thought. But, but beyond that, what are ways you can jump in and be involved and be all in at Grace Hill? What can we do? Because listen, there's a lot of work to be done. There are a lot of people in this area that need Jesus. I was recently, this past week, looking at populations in different zip codes in Dallas. And I was looking specifically in this area. Our zip code is 75218, and in that zip code, there are over 22,000 people according to, according to 2017. So it's grown since then. In the church's zip code, which is 75238, there's over 33,000 people according to 2017 numbers. Again, that number has increased. And all these areas around here are, are the size of small towns, and we have the incredible opportunity to reach them. I get excited I don't become overwhelmed or intimidated. I don't go, oh God, how can we ever? I go, man, look at the possibility. Look at what we can do. Look at all the people we can reach. Look at, look at all the, the needs that we can meet and, and the families that we can help mend and the, and the people that can find Jesus and the lives that can be restored and hope restored and, and joy restored that through the work of what God wants to do here because we jump in and we say, we're all in doing what God has called us to do. We are gonna see an area in a city in a world changed. It's incredible. It's incredible. Right now in Grace Kids, they are jumping all in as well. They're running with this. And I want to make the parents aware of this so that you guys know they too are trying to raise money. They're trying to hit a goal of $1,000 in Grace Kids. 
and you go, whoa, that's a lot of money for 25 kids. Yes, because it comes out of your pocket. <laughs> Unless you have a very like entrepreneurial-minded child out raising the money on their own, and maybe you do. Maybe you do, and that's good. But know that our kids are saying, you know what, we want to be all in too. This morning, my, my son was going, Dad, do you have money for me to give? And I go, I probably should. I should probably give you some money. So next Sunday, my kids are coming armed with, with money, and they're going to give, and they're going to jump in, and we're going to say, we're all in too. We want to see people come to know Jesus. Our kids are being challenged to reach people also and to jump in and to serve. And if you don't know this, also, in Grace Kids, when they get to be in third grade, there is opportunities for them to start serving in that service. And then as they get older, they get, they get greater responsibilities. They can be a part of doing other things. My son, Boston, is so excited for the day that he's old enough to run media in kids' church. He's like, I can't wait till I'm in fourth grade. I'm going to, third grade, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run the computer. And I was like, awesome. So they, they get to go all in in that service. Your kids are, are being taught what it means to serve and to work and to give and to worship. So when I say there's need, listen, that's all the need we need to say that our kids are worth investing into. So this morning, as you grab a card, if you haven't already, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray and just ask that God would speak to our hearts and that God would lead us in, in, in where to jump in. Where should we be involved? What should we be doing? And maybe, maybe you go, you know what? I haven't jumped in yet. I haven't served anywhere yet. And I know I need to. Maybe that's where you are. And maybe this morning, God is speaking to you and saying, you know what? There is a place for you. You might think, well, I'm not the most outgoing. But listen, there is a place for you. We all have a place here. We all belong here. We all belong in this, in this journey together. We all have something we can offer and something we can do. We can all go all in. Father, we love you. And we thank you, God, for this morning and for what you've done and for the work that you're doing. Lord, we know that when we step out in faith, that when we step out and begin to do what you have called us to do, Lord, opposition will come. But God, we, we don't become discouraged or, or brought down by that. We know, God, in the end, we win. In the end, you have the victory. And so, Lord, we, we step out and we trust that and we walk in that and we say, Father, we thank you for the victory. We thank you that we can walk in faith knowing, God, fear has no place. that we trust you and we can walk with you and walk in faith, believing that as we step out, as we, as we go all in, Lord, with our hearts, with our minds, with, a, with our giving, with our worship, when we go all in with our talents and our abilities, Lord, that only, only through that, in that moment of obedience, God, will you then begin to bring the blessing. Only then will you begin to bring the, the, the fruit that comes from it. So God, we step out today and we say, Lord, we wanna be obedient and we want to trust you. And we want to commit to serving you to the, with the best of our ability, the best of our ability. We know, God, that, that you have great things for this church. God, we know and we believe the best is yet to come. Our greatest days are still ahead of us. So, Father, this morning we stand with the attitude and the mindset that says, I cannot be defeated and I will not quit and I will persevere and I will push through the opposition and I will stand strong and I'll stand in faith going all in so that someone can come to know Jesus.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.